If you have your Bible, turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 7. So much else going on today. I still, I'll still just mention that though he doesn't start officially until uh, Tuesday, um, uh, Tanner, uh, our new youth pastor, Tanner Manns, is worshiping with us and his wife, Katie, and sons Connor and Theo. So uh, uh, you see them around as well. And a lot of transitions going on. You know, Dan's uh, planning to kick the dust off his feet with us, you know, and it's good to have somebody coming uh, to be uh, with us. And so we are, uh, there is a lot going on, so we can be prayerful about those things and great to have uh, Luther and his wife with us today. Uh, I told his wife on the way in, well, your husband's famous around here. She said, don't tell him that. <laughs> but 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 it's the truth. Uh, and the kids have really, really, uh, our, our young adults have really enjoyed going down to Kansas City and being part of that ministry. Let's stand together, Mark 7, 17 to 23. We're making our way straight through the gospel of Mark, and we come to this paragraph, verses 17 to 23. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus, little editorial comment by Mark, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, We thank you that you are God. And sometimes we wonder what you're up to, as the psalmist says, David says in Psalm 3, O Lord, how our enemies multiply. Many are those rising against us. Many are those saying to our souls, there is no salvation for them in God. 
Lord, we think of your people worshiping all around the world this day, and most of them are in places far more hostile than the United States of America to Christianity. Many of them are in places where Christians are deeply, openly, not only hated, but persecuted, in some places killed. And in those places, it looks all together that the many who say to us there is no salvation for them in God, it looks true, but it's not. For you are our shield all around us. You are our glory and the one lifting up our heads Lord, we cry out unto you about all of the trials and tribulations of our life, about our failures and our losses and the things that break our heart, the things that are profoundly disappointing and we are powerless to change. We cry out to you and you answer us. And you answer us from where you sit in heaven, being our Father who is in heaven. And night by night we lie down and we sleep, and morning by morning we waken. Not because it's automatic, but because you have sustained us through the night, kept us going have more for us to do. Lord, make us so confident, like the psalmist says, that we will not fear 10,000 people who are set all around us. Arise, O Lord, and save us as our God. You assure us that in the end, You will strike the enemies of your Christ and your people on the cheek. You will break the teeth of the wicked. To you and to you alone belongs salvation. And upon your people, you have promised to rest everlasting blessing. And you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I've mentioned probably too many times part of a practical Christian work assignment at Moody Bible Institute, door to door, Oak Park, Illinois, uh, using a religious survey to uh, share the gospel at the key moment for those people that will talk to you, to you long enough uh, to get to this moment is a question that was designed for the evangelism explosion program developed by the Presbyterian pastor James D. Kennedy, where you pose this question to some person in their front stoop there in, in Oak Park. If you were to die tonight and stand before 
God and he were to ask you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? Number one answer, by far. Well, I would say that I've always tried to be a good person. And I've never done anything all that bad. I've never killed anybody. Number one answer. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, he was bolder than them. Uh, In imitating uh, St. Augustine's confessions, Rousseau, as an atheist, wrote some confessions. He didn't really believe in God, but mockingly he wrote right off the top of his confessions. If I would end up standing before God at the end of the age, like these Christians say, here's what I'd say. Okay, Lord, gather some people around and compare me with them. And you tell me whether or not I'm not at least as good and maybe a little better. So wrote Rousseau. Now last week we opened with a quotation from Jeremiah and we're going to open with one this week as well. Uh, This time, Jeremiah 17. Uh, Jeremiah's got a different view of the average person than the person in Oak Park, Illinois does. Jeremiah's got a different view of the average person than Jean-Jacques Rousseau does. Jeremiah's view is starkly presented to us this way. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That second little piece this time around, it's rare rare that the NIV translates something a little bit more literally than the ESV, but on this verse it did. Here's how the NIV reads. And the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Beyond cure. It's actually a passive participle. It is, the heart is incurable, incurably diseased in and of itself. Now, just four verses earlier, Jeremiah would have given this warning to the folks in Oak Park. Jeremiah 17, 5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in men, including yourself. Cursed is the man who trusts in men and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And then on the other side of verse 9 is verse 10 which is the really daunting news for us to consider as we consider what Jesus says here in Mark 7. 
The heart is deceitful above all things and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to his deeds. That is not good news. That is not good news. I state our thesis for this morning this way. We stand defiled from the inside out as people. We stand defiled from the inside out. Our problem is us. My problem is me. Your problem is you. We stand defiled from the inside out. Four things Jesus says to us about that through speaking to his disciples. The first is, we don't easily arrive at that conclusion. So here it is. We are slow to understand. We are slow to understand this thing in particular. Verse 17 and 18. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? In other words, you, and you guys don't get it either? And the answer was no. No, they didn't get it. Now here was the parable back in verses 14 and 15. He called the people, said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But it's the things that come out of a person that defile him. And they say, well, really, we, we don't, no, we don't, we, we don't get that. We don't, we don't want to get that. Uh, uh, here's how we want to analyze things. If you would have been around our house uh, when I was four years old, uh, this would not have been an unfamiliar scene. Um, my brother comes running down the stairs, and I throw a shoe after him, and uh, and he's three and a half years older than me, and I'm and I'm yelling at him, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, screaming, screaming. My mom comes, whoa, whoa, you know what's going on here? What are you screaming about? It's not my fault. It's him. Afflicted with a teasing brother. Teasing brother. I'm not the kind of boy that runs around screaming, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. I'm not like that at all. Now, it sounded like I was like that, but I'm not. I'm only like that when you put me in a family with a brother like Doug. Now, my mother's heart was hard, and she was not buying. <laughs> she was not buying. 
She didn't disagree with me all that much about Doug, but she disagreed with me a whole bunch about me. Because she knew that she was raising two very sinful boys. And, and we gave her fresh reminders, as I say, with some regularity. But as we grow older, we, we get slower and slower to get that. We think the problem is mainly out there. And if you just monitor a little bit what comes in, you know, if you do certain religious things well, and in, in this text, you know, it was washing hands and washing cups, uh, then you can certainly be uh, before God in good standing. And Jesus is excessively doubtful about that. Uh, And he's warning us, don't you spend your time assuming that your spiritual trouble, your trouble with sin, why you are the way you are, is out there. Because it's not out there fundamentally. It's fundamentally in you. Secondly, we are slow... To see what makes foods harmless. Now that's a narrow point to a narrow example that's in this text. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters his heart, not not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach... And is expelled. Now, as we're going to see, how slow they were to get that peace is is clearly borne out in the New Testament. Because remember, Mark is giving an ed- Mark gives a little editorial comment in the middle of this passage of what all of the disciples should have learned this day when Jesus said what he said. Remember his little editorial comment there in the middle. Uh, Right in verse 19. Thus he declared all foods clean. My guess is none of the disciples got that that day. None of them. We know for certain that Peter didn't get it. I got to cut Peter a little slack because the example we're about to go to wasn't dealing with the tradition of the elders and the scribes, but what we're about to refer to was dealing with what's actually written in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There were food laws. So if you're Jewish, under no circumstances do you eat pork. Official Jewish position, we don't eat pork. No, no, no. But Acts chapter 10, Peter is up on the roof, a little past time to eat. He ends up having a vision 
Well, he's up there about food. And in his vision, here's what he sees. Acts 10, 12. Following. Sheets coming down from heaven. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. There came a voice to him. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now here's the picture. On this sheet were all kinds of animals that the book of Leviticus said can't eat them ever. They'll make you unclean. And in the vision, while Peter's looking at that group of animals, he's told, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. But God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. God tells him, Peter says, no, I don't think so. You can't be eating the pork. So he didn't learn anything back in in Mark 7. He didn't get any of that. He didn't get it at all. Here he is, still arguing with the Lord. Um, Now, in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy, as uh, Don and Terry, as they taught that class this summer, made plain, right? Here's the thing to keep in mind. It was never about the food. In Leviticus, it was not about pork. It was not about certain birds. It was never about that. These were side issues that were placed into the law to help slow down the paganization of the people of God by giving them barrier markers to mark them out from the Canaanites and everybody else that would be around them. And so they were supposed to pay attention to these things to mark themselves out and slow down the likelihood that by the ability to relate so carefully with their neighbors, their neighbors would completely paganize them. Which they did anyways. Which they did anyways. So that by the book of Judges, you know, we read that what's the average Israelite right? Like he does whatever's right in his, his own eyes. What's the average Canaanite like? The same. They both do what's ever right in their own eyes. And Jesus is saying, the problem has never been food. Our problem has never been outside things coming and defiling us. Our problem has always been our hearts. Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, 
and is, and is expelled, thus declaring all foods clean. Thirdly, we're slow to see what makes other things at least dangerous. We noted this last week, right? Contrasted last week, my Pastor Wright, my childhood pastor with Francis Schaeffer. I gave you one contrast. Oh, I get, uh, let, me, let me multiply it into three. I meant to do this last week. Pastor Wright never would go to the movie theater under any circumstances. Francis Schaeffer once dragged a man from our church to a movie theater with him. Pastor Wright would never have a glass of wine with his meal. Francis Schaeffer had a glass of wine with almost every meal. Pastor Wright would never have anything but a short haircut. Francis Schaeffer in the 60s and 70s grew his hair long. Which is what all the rebels were doing at that time. So our question was, can you tell by where they go and what they drink and by their haircut, who's more worldly? And the answer of the American fundamentalist movement was, yes, you definitely can. And Schaefer's more worldly. The answer of the New Testament is, no, you can't tell that easily. You can't tell by those outward things. But, but, don't forget this. Don't forget this. Though we are not defiled automatically by what comes from the outside in, we are not defiled automatically by seeing a certain film. We need to remember that there are certain things in NRS that have a tendency to go right to our hearts. That certainly are designed to go to our hearts. I mentioned back in the spring that the uh, folk singer Gordon Lightfoot died. He's in his early 80s. Uh, Lightfoot wrote this really insightful lyric in, uh, in a song called The Minstrel of the Dawn. He wrote this. The minstrel of the dawn is here to make us laugh and bend your ear. Up the steps you hear him climb, all full of thoughts, all full of rhymes. Here's the two key lines. Listen to the pictures flow across the room into your minds. They flow. You automatically rendered worldly by pop music? No, not automatically. Are you in danger of an outside influence perverting the way you think? 
Oh, grave danger. Grave danger. Serious danger. Things that work their way toward our heart. So, well, he didn't say heart, he said mind. Well, same thing for Hebrew. Most of the time, when the Hebrew Bible uses a little word lave, which can be translated heart, it's the main word to be translated heart. Most of the time, by heart, it means the thing you think and decide with. <laughs> That's what it means. So your heart is what we most often mean by your mind, the thing that you think with, the thing that you decide with. That's your heart. And Gordon Lightfoot was right up front to tell you, listen to the pictures flow across the room. Into your heart they go. Better know that. Better know that. And those writing those scripts and those writing those lyrics, they mean to have an influence on our hearts. They don't automatically have it. But we need to be at least aware of the fact that there's other people besides Jesus trying to disciple us. And we're trying to be discipled by Jesus, ultimately, to the heart, like from nobody else. Paul said this to the Galatians in Galatians 5:13. For you're called to freedom, brother, so you got the freedom to do all these things. You do. He says, you're called to freedom, brothers, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Commenting on that, the reformer John Calvin wrote this, and Calvin was very aware of the tricky nature of the heart. We mentioned many times before, you know, Calvin's in his early 50s. He's been studying the Bible all his life. And here's what Calvin stills. He knows about himself. He's frustrated. He can't shake it. I am a man who is easily irritated. After studying the Bible all my life, I still remain a man easily irritated. Should not be, but it is. My heart still remains that corrupt, so I better watch myself. Not only in that area, but all kinds of other areas. Here's what Calvin wrote. Liberty is not given to the flesh, which ought rather to be held captive under a yoke. But it is a spiritual benefit, and then he says this, of which none but godly minds are capable. And we shouldn't be too quick to assume that our minds are godly across the board, because they're not. We wrestle with stuff. We fight with stuff. We struggle with stuff. Fourth and finally, we are slow to evaluate ourselves Honestly, now this is the heart of the passage, verse 21, 20 and 21. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. 
For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come within, come from within, and they defile a person. I'm a, I'm a great fan of Mr. C.S. Lewis. One of my favorite little Lewis paragraphs I'm going to quote to you in a minute. Uh, so I, I, I mentioned, you know, being such a big fan because I'm about to criticize him, criticize one of my favorite paragraphs of his. Uh, because... It so clearly differs from what Jesus says here. Uh, here's what Lewis said in a wonderful chapter in Mere Christianity. The chapter's titled, The Great Sin. He's talking about pride. Here's what Lewis wrote. He said, you will remember that when I was talking about sexual immorality, I warned you that the center of Christian morality did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It is through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every evil vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So pride, clearly, the sin above all sins. Not how Jesus sees it. Clearly not how Jesus sees it. You notice verse 21. Now, there's this long list, but actually, verse 21, there's only one thing in that list that stands as the subject of the main verb. So the subject of the verb is evil reasonings. Evil reasonings. From inside, from the heart of men, the evil reasonings proceed out. And then he lists 12 examples of evil reasonings. And it's, it's stylized. The first six are all placed in the plural. The second six are all singular. Um, I think that's just style, because there's really no distinction in any other way in the list. But that is how he put it. So, six plurals, and then six singulars. But what I want you to notice is what C.S. Lewis said is so central that everyone, everything else is like flea bites in comparison Pride doesn't even show up in Jesus' list until number 11. (laughs) 
And so I'm just telling you, if you've got to choose between being discipled by C.S. Lewis or Jesus, you go with Jesus every time. Every time. So evil reasonings, evil thoughts, that's our trouble. That's our trouble. Now we as a culture, we don't like to think that way at all. We want all the trouble to be out there, just like with me and my brother. So the real trouble in our country is social structures. Well, there's plenty of problems there. That's not the fundamental trouble. You want to make everything about social structures. Fix those, and then we'll have a perfect place. (laughs) No. First of all, the reason the social structures are all messed up is that the hearts of men who put them into place are all messed up. That's what comes first. That's what comes first. There are no social structures around until we mess them up. We messed them up. It's us. It's us. Now here's what J.C. Ryle wrote on this passage. And it is, again, extremely insightful. I can see why J.I. Packer said that J.C. Ryle was the most important theological influence in his life. He writes simply, he writes, this, this is again just one of his uh, little expositions out of, of course, this time the Gospel of Mark on this passage. He wrote this, How watchful we ought to be when we remember these verses. He means verse 21 in particular. What a careful guard we ought to keep on our imaginations, our tongues, and our daily behavior. At the head of the black list of our heart's context, content stands evil thoughts. Let us never forget that. Thoughts are the parents of words and deeds. Let us pray daily for grace to keep our thoughts in order. And let us cry earnestly and fervently. Lead us not into temptation. Uh, Now the last two things in Jesus' list, I'm going to go to them. I I brought up... I know I mentioned going door to door in Oak Park not that long ago. See, I'm a little senile, but not that senile. So I do remember what I said just a few weeks ago. But I brought it up because earlier this week, a friend of mine mentioned to me that he was sharing the faith with a friend of his. And his friend gave him the Oak Park answer. You know, he didn't ask him the diagnostic question. He just told him, you really need Jesus. Well, I'm not so sure. I'm really basically a pretty good person. Give generously, make donations. Give lots of money to charity. I'm involved in the community. Done a lot of good. A lot of good. 
The last two pieces of Jesus' list are, are these, pride and foolishness. Now, we usually flip them around uh, in, the, in our little phrase, foolish pride. Foolish pride, last two things in his list, foolish pride. Where do we get this idea how wonderful we are? Well, I can tell you where they got the idea in Oak Park, Illinois, because I used to listen to the radio there when I lived in Chicago. It's a highly Roman Catholic neighborhood. They weren't, they weren't all that discipled by the Roman Catholic Church. They were widely discipled by the most popular radio voice in Chicago in the, in the 70s, late 60s, 70s, and 80s guy by the name of Wally Phillips. Now, it's a local radio station, so just think about this for a moment. You know, you, we're used now to people got these massive audiences. Wally Phillips, on the morning drive, had an average audience in the morning of 1.5 million people a day. And what he drummed home every day is there's nothing more wonderful than Chicagoans. Chicagoans are wonderful people. Basically, what makes Chicago Chicago is people helping people. That's what Chicago's all about, people helping people. And if you would call him and give an example of how you were people helping people, he would give you free tickets to a restaurant which motivated quite a few calls. (laughs) People helping people. People helping people. So you ask those folks out in Oak Park, you worried about yourself? No, they're not worried. Why? They've been listening to Wally Phillips. Now, you call Wally and quote a Bible verse, you're not going to a restaurant. You're not getting tickets to Chicago Fest. You get squat. But you affirm how wonderful the average Chicagoan is. And he'll send you out to eat. And here's what Jesus would say. He'll make an arrogant fool out of you. He'll make an arrogant fool out of you. Because by saying that, what those people in Oak Park were saying tells you that two things. Number one, I think I can stand on my record. That's what my friend's friend was saying, like, a, like an incumbent politician. On the last day, I'm running on my record. I'm running on my record. Bad idea. Bad idea. Um, Because your record's a disaster. And and if you don't know that, you're something of a fool for that. But worse, and far more widespread, people know nothing about the holiness of God. 
They know nothing about the character of God. They know nothing about the standards of the one who they're going to answer to in the end. They know nothing about that. And hence, they become arrogant fools, saying this ridiculous thing. I've always tried to be a good person. I'm pretty sure I'll be fine on this judgment day. There's no chance you'll be fine on the judgment day apart from Jesus Christ. No chance at all. Charles Wesley was a born-again Christian and had been for a long time when he wrote that great quotable line, one of his more famous hymns, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. In Jesus, Lover of My Soul, Wesley gives this testimony about himself, and it's a testimony that you and I, I hope, would give about ourselves today. Here's what Wesley said. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. 1 John 5, we'll close with this. 1 John 1, I should say. Verse 7 and following. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Now, here's the important thing to see, and I'm not going to look it up. You can look it up. But if you go over to John three nineteen and 20, you'll find out what John means by walking in the light, not is that you're going to become sinfully perfect. No, no, far from it. Charles Wesley wrote that line, false and full of sin I am, precisely because he was walking in the light. And by walking in the light, his sins are constantly being exposed to him. He's constantly being exposed to him. And he's constantly saying to himself, what is still wrong with me? What's wrong with me? How can I still be this false and full of sin. I'm 45 years into this thing or 50 years. That's how it goes. Which is why John goes on to say what he says in 1 John. If we walk in the light, he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Our only hope. And so the only answer, I hope this is your answer from the heart, and if it's not, you've got the wrong answer. There you are. As D. James Kennedy painted the picture. You can stand before God at the end of the age. Why should I let you into my heaven? The only answer is, Because through faith, the blood of Jesus, your son, has cleansed me from all sin. Jesus is absolutely my only hope. I stand with Jesus or not at all. My only hope. It's true.
He's the only hope of any person in this room. He's the only person, hope of any person in this state, in this country, in this world. He's the only hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we confess with Charles Wesley, false and full of sin we are. And you are full of truth and grace. May we see it. May we understand that we defile ourselves from the inside out. May we, as Ryle said, pray about our thoughts. Fear our thoughts. Watch what's making its way into our hearts. Monitoring our hearts. But ultimately... Ultimately, as we seek to walk in the light, being constantly drawn to confess our sins to you who are faithful and just, to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.